Good morning. My name is Pastor Kevin Hauser, and welcome to Chinese Gospel Church. It is Sunday morning, August 2nd, and I welcome you to the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that it is your desire to do so through the study of his word this morning. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 36, verses 5 through 7. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning solely and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We recognize publicly before you and before our family that we are sinners saved by grace. We are nothing without the cross. And we take great strength that our God is a warrior God. Well, we see that throughout the Old Testament time and time again. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 15 as, as Moses gives you praise for bringing the people of Israel through the, the, uh, the, the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Oh, what great promises that has for us. That as our warrior king, you have defeated sin and death once for all. And that you lead us into battle every day against our own sin, against the world, against the forces of this present darkness that we're going to learn about again today. And we have great assurance that you have already won the battle in Jesus Christ. So we come here this morning with a great desire, great expectancy to meet with you through the word. That Holy Spirit, you would just make your presence evident, even through this means of social distancing that we're continuing to experience and broadcasting this online. We know that you are all powerful and that you will continue to bend our hearts, our minds, our desires to your perfect will. And you will continue to glorify yourself in and through your people. So we come and, and we pray for our church. We pray for this time of COVID, that you would continue to strengthen every family as they find themselves still shut within their walls all too often, as they struggle with the interrelationships in the confined quarters. But we do pray as we open our borders even more, we come into this new third stage that you will help us as a population, as a, as a culture, as a country, to maintain vigilance, to understand the risks of what might come if we don't. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with first responders and essential workers, those who continue to be uh, in the front line of this battle on a regular basis. But we pray especially for those families, for those individuals in our congregation who have known days of mourning and weeping because it has affected their family. They have lost loved ones. 
we continue to ask that you would comfort them, that you would bring them joy, that you would allow them to see the goodness of your mercy continue despite not having their friend or family member here. As a people, Lord God, I pray for us, whether it's Cantonese, Mandarin, or English, for what you would desire of us as a church, Lord God, once we open up again to coming here physically. We have heard of the possibilities of changing the hours of worship, and we understand the great and mighty needs of of the Mandarin congregation to care for their children, that none of them would be lost as they grow up. Lord, if that is your will, help us, I pray, each one of us to recognize the great and wonderful task that is ours to serve one another in Christ, to be a better extended family one to another, to be a better witness in this community. So, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. I pray for my dear friend who is this morning preaching for a call. He has been through several challenging churches, having to close one down personally. And, Lord, it's his desire to serve. May you be with him and extend him grace as he teaches from your word and admonishes your people. We thank you for this hour now of study and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just continue to guide us and lead us. The the truths that are here are eternal, that they're easy to understand, they're simplistic in one way, and yet, Lord God, they confound even the wisest of us because your truth is so deep it is infathomable sometimes how you work the intricacies together. And as we come to your word, we're going to be looking at the armor of God. We may have heard of this dozens of times before in Sunday school, in CE classes, online, uh, listening to other preachers. And yet, Lord God, you have set this before us this morning. Help us to examine our heart as we interact with your word and convict us of our holy need to put it on daily. Guide us now, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18, but we're actually going to be focusing this morning on 14 through 18. So I'm going to read starting at verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual foes of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of, of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord, praying at all times in the Spirit with all power, with all prayer and supplication. Amen.
1795, Europe was again engulfed in war. But this war was a war that had a different fervor about it. There was a sense that history was about to change. The old order of the medieval world was being ushered out and the Age of Enlightenment was coming in. And with that, the hows and the whys of warfare were being replaced by national patriotism. On the one side, there was the French and their allies. On the other side, there was a coalition that included the British, the Prussians, the Portuguese, the, the Spanish, the Holy Roman Empire, and, and several other little uh, city-states. They were against this radical redefining or reordering of society. And things were going well for the French. They were literally overrunning Belgium and Holland. So much so that when General Pichigru uh, heard that the Dutch Navy was actually anchored for the winter off the coast of Den Helder, he decided, what can I do to create a, a final decisive battle that will win this war. De Helder, if you think about uh, uh, Holland itself, if you can picture it on a map, there's this man-made isthmus or peninsula that goes around the north. It's like a hat that goes on the country. And it separates the country from the North Sea and the, up there and creates this mostly fresh water body down here. Well, the winter of 1794 and 1795 was exceptionally cold. On January 23rd, when Pichigru arrived, he could hardly believe his eyes. There lay the Dutch fleet, the whole navy, entrapped in ice a mile off the land, just as his spies had said. So what did he do? He commanded that all of the cavalry officers put cloths, wrapped cloths around the hooves of their horses so that they wouldn't make noise, and that each one would carry a foot soldier with them on the horse, and they went out across the ice without breaking the ice, without disturbing the Dutch. They took 14 ships, 850 guns. Not one person was killed on either side. This obviously brought a, a quick and humiliating end to the Dutch part in this war. And you know what? It marks the only time documented in history when an army actually was victorious in battle over a navy. And here's the thing that I, I want to pull out. The, the Dutch made many, many errors that cost them dearly. They misunderstood the passion and the fervor and the craftiness of the enemy who would go to any lengths to win. They were playing with an outdated uh, uh, playbook about how to wage war. They were unknowingly in a battle that they should have been more convicted about because this was an ideological war, not simply a war about territory. It, it meant changing the very society of Europe. They had lulled themselves into a false sense of security, thinking, okay, we're, we're anchored here safely off land. No one's going to bother us. And most importantly, they misunderstood the charismatic person, the driven nature of the enemy's commander, Napoleon, who with rousing speeches could get men to do great feats of daring for their country. I start with an example because their errors are ours to learn today. You know, 
we live in a day when we say that, that we're in spiritual warfare, but I don't really un- know if we understand what it means. It, it's a good example of what we looked at last week in verses 10 through 13 as leads us into what we're looking in today, and that is the armor of God. In the previous verses that we looked at, Paul's concern was that we know who our enemy is, and we know what kind of war we're fighting. That was part of the problem of the Dutch. As long as the Lord grants us time here on earth, we're going to be waging war against our own sin because our flesh desires sin. And we're going to be waging war with the world around us because it wants us to conform to it. But Paul's primary concern in these verses is that our battle ultimately is not with flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the cosmic powers, the principalities of this evil age. And it's led by a general more crafty, more resourceful than we could ever imagine. A consummate fisher of men whose aim is to defile our conscience, to disfigure the grace of God in our life, to encourage others to sin by our example, and to create a breach between us and God. His power and authority are real, and we'd be foolish to think that he was toothless. Even though we may not always sense it, Even though we may be rarely in the front line, this spiritual war is going on around us at all times. There's never a truce. There's never a detente. (coughs) It's not a question of if we will ever be attacked or ever be on the front line. It's simply a question of when. Each and every one of us will experience firsthand, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat, a wrestling with these evil forces. Now, Paul also wants us to understand that uh, despite this horde, this formidable force that's aligned against us, we can be strong in the strength of the Lord because he has given us a complete set of armor. He has given us a a set of spiritual armor not made by hands of, of men. The challenge, however, is that God has given this armor but it is our responsibility to put it on daily, all of it. If we don't, it's going to sit in a corner and we're going to be susceptible to Satan's attacks. This morning, as we're looking at this armor in verses 14 through 18, it's important for us to understand, I'm going to be looking at this as as a unit, as one literary piece, and so take a large picture concept of it. It would be very profitable for us if if we took the time over six, seven weeks and actually broke each one down into its constituent elements and looked at it. There's much we can do there, but in looking at it as a whole, I want to encourage you and and whet your appetite for more. If you are interested in more, I want to encourage you to get Gurnall's book, The Christian in Complete Armor. We, We talked about it in one of our CE classes on the Puritans. 261 pages, 1,100 pages of what it means to be put on, to put on the armor of God. 
Now this week, I, I tried skimming through the important sections that I thought would, would touch on today, but there was still so much just skimming the titles and understanding these points. I just didn't have time for it. So again, we're going to look at this as a, as a whole unit, but I encourage you, if you want more, there's lots. Now when Paul speaks of this armor of God, he does so in terms of a Roman foot soldier, doesn't he? It's somebody he sees on a daily basis. Because you remember, he's imprisoned in Rome as he's writing this letter to the churches, to, to the church in Ephesus. And every day he sees this Roman soldier with this garb on. And he sees these six pieces and he says, I, I need to share spiritual truth with the people of God. He says, there is a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and a spirit, uh, sorry, a sword of the spirit. Now, this image helps us to, to picture this, doesn't it? Uh, but I think we often get fixated in trying to describe each of the pieces in terms of what they did in a real physical war. Because Paul's simply giving us a metaphor here. And this is really what he wants us to know. Here are six things that you need to have if you're going to be in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the forces of evil and be victorious. So let's now start to take a look at them. First, he says, if, if we're going to stand in battle and resist Satan, we must be girded with truth. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul means here, we need to understand that there's two components to truth. First, Truth starts with right understanding, what we call doctrine. It, it must, we must have a right understanding of who we are, who God is, what Jesus Christ has done to, to give us salvation, and then how God's grace has come to us that we might have it. If we don't have this foundation, this right understanding, whether it is a, an, an understanding that's not full or simply a, an understanding that is contrary, really, to the Word of God. That's, that's not really biblical. We're going to find that our foundation is going to be like the house that was built on the sand. Our, like a house of cards. It's going to come down. But right understanding is not enough. It starts there, but it's not enough. We must also be people who have an inward compulsion that this truth leads us on. A steely resolution in the face of danger. Truth at, at this point must grip our heart, our inward being, and, and create an unwavering obedience to do the will of God. And that's lived out in every area of our life. And as it's lived out, this inward communion, it develops a, an inward communion with God that really affects <coughs> every other aspect of our life. God's truth must rest in our bones. It must so take control of us that we are inwardly what we are, sorry, what we are outwardly is what we are inwardly. We must be men and women whose outward lives reflect God's truth in every way. We must have integrity, a spotless integrity 24-7. And, and if that truth doesn't grip us, we won't be able to stand the attacks of Satan. Because here's what he'll do. He'll say, oh, you hypocrite. You say you love God. You, you say that, that you've been saved. 
But look at your life. His truth doesn't filter down any more than your understanding. It has no practical outworking in your life. You say you believe in the truth of God, but it doesn't affect the way you live. Now, we all know that we're not perfect. And that as we come to God and and confess our sins, he will receive us and he'll say your sins are forgiven. But here's the thing, Satan will be relentless, relentless on his attack on our conscience. He'll chip away at our integrity until we fall prey to his lies, unless we are firmly rooted in the truth and we are outwardly living that truth. That's why not only are we need to be people who are inwardly gripped by this, so much so that we stand naturally for that truth and, and we can fend off Satan. And that's why as people, we, who, we must have a, a sincere desire for truth. We must seek after God's word. We, we need to ask God for his discernment. And I would even say we need to contemplate the reality of God's judgment for apostasy. What does it mean that we leave the truth of God? If we neglect to seek after truth, if we neglect to grow in it, if, if we neglect to have it as a, a governing principle in our life, we will fail and fall in battle. And if we think that the search for truth, the search for right doctrine, just isn't important, we need to think again. We must be people who are, guarded, are girded by truth. The second thing Paul says, if you're going to stand firm in the battle and resist Satan, we must have a, a character, a, a, a life that is uh, characterized by holiness. Now, like truth, righteousness has two components. Both are necessary. First, we, we understand that we were totally sinful. Every aspect of who we are was depraved. And so we need to experience a righteousness that is not ours, a righteousness that is imputed or accredited to us before we come to faith in Christ. It's this righteousness by which sinners are made holy. And it's upon the basis of this righteousness of Christ that God's grace continues to work in us so that we experience sanctification, we experience holiness. Now, having experienced this righteousness of Christ and and having experienced the reality that has now made us alive in Christ, a new creature in Christ, it too must so grip us, it grips our heart, it grips our will, that we earnestly desire to live in holiness. Our new default is to live for the glory of God. And that means we're going to wrestle with sin. We're going to want to put sin to death in our lives, and we're not going to want to be complacent about it. We know we're not perfect. And until God calls us home, we're going to live in this world. Our lives must be marked by a growth of Christ-likeness. We must be serious about our holiness. And, And possessing a deep conviction of being morally right with God is important. Morally right and sensing it and sense the objective truth of Christ, but the subjective walk with God right now is it's all important because Satan, again, will attack our conscience. What happens when we don't have a sense that we're living morally upright before God? 
We lose our sense of God's transforming work in our life. We lose our, our sense of God's acceptance of us. We lose our sense of the forgiveness of sin. And this exactly is where Satan is going to attack again. He's going to attack our conscience. He's going to say, how can you be a Christian? Look at your sins. Look how easy it is for you to stumble. You don't even try to get out of the way of sin anymore. You don't struggle. You certainly don't go to God when you should repent. If we don't have a rock-solid conviction that we are made holy by Christ and that we are continuing to experience an outworking process of holiness, we are ripe for the pickings of Satan. We must be people who have an unwavering assurance that our righteousness comes from Christ, people who are serious about growing in godliness. The third thing Paul says If we're going to stand firm in the battle and resist Satan, we must have an ongoing experience of peace with God. Paul talks about this as having our feet shod with the peace of the gospel. Now, when we first come to faith in Christ, we come into this new relationship, and we have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. Our conscience is clean. There's no sense of guilt there. And we have this close communion with God. All because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We who were once enemies of God, separated from God because of sin, are now brought into this relationship of peace and love because Christ has reconciled us. What Paul's emphasizing here is our ability to stand against Satan is dependent on this, that we have experienced the objective truth of peace with God because we've been born again but we also experience an ongoing sense of close communion with God on a daily basis. Too many of us will remember our our day of salvation. Yes, I remember when I cried like a baby at that table and I had peace with God, but I don't feel the peace of God on a daily basis. Paul says you must. If you're going to fight Satan, you must have the peace of God. So we need to understand and believe in our, our innermost being that we are now made acceptable by the sacrifice of Christ. We have peace with God. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God, and we've been reconciled unto each other. And he has bestowed upon us all the fullness of his spiritual blessings. But here's the thing, again. It's not something that simply happened in the past. It it must be something that we experience on a daily basis, a a sense of peace and communion with God, an ongoing transformation of the Spirit in us. And this ongoing assurance with God, it compels us to tell others of the gospel because we want them to know the peace of God as well. But it is essential if we're going to stand up against Satan because here's what he's going to do. He's going to come to you and say, God doesn't really love you. He didn't really forgive you. Christ didn't really die for all of those sins. You don't need to repent. And and I I think there are way too many people in our churches these days who have, again, experienced that peace once at, at some point in their life when they came to faith in Christ, but they're not experiencing it on a daily basis. And that's a concern because you're not ready to fight Satan and we don't know when he's coming. 
if we don't have that daily abiding sense of God's ongoing approbation, a sense of peace with God daily, despite our sins, we will never be able to stand against the forces of evil in this day. Fourth, Paul says if we're going to stand firm in the battle and resist Satan, we must have our entire trust in God. Here, Paul speaks of the shield of faith which can extinguish all of the fiery darts of the evil one. <clears throat> faith by nature is trusting, isn't it? By faith, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. By faith, we believe that he lived a perfect life only to lay it down as a sacrifice for sin. By faith, I believe he died for me. By faith, I trust him for my salvation. I trust him with my very life. But one of the greatest challenges we have on a daily basis is, is we like to compartmentalize our life for whatever reason. This is the spiritual, this is the physical day-to-day -day life. Uh, we can trust Jesus for our eternal salvation, but in the other areas of our life, we may trust in our own abilities. We must trust, uh, may trust in other people. We may trust in just the, the routines of life that come day after day that, that seem so sure. In order to resist the devil, our faith must be entirely set on Christ without reservation. He not only saved me, but I trust him every moment of every day. Do we believe deep down without hesitation in that every aspect of life God is for me? Do we believe deep down without any reservation that as I live out my life, God has already won the battle and that my eternal security is, is assured? Am I living this out in such a way that I, I know and demonstrate that God is sovereignly guiding all things to their ultimate end in himself? That everything that happens to me is for my good and his glory? that he who gave his own son will graciously give all things, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are all things that come from Romans 8, right? And if Paul says, if these things are in place, who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one, not even Satan himself. And yet, that's exactly what Satan's going to do. He'll say, you know what? God's not really in the details. He's a big picture guy. <laughs> he, he doesn't really always have your best interest in mind because he's got billions of people in the world and you're just one small person in all of that. Are you sure that everything that the church taught you and you learned in Sunday, sco Sunday school is actually true or even important in your life? You know what? God, he's not going to sweat the small things, so don't worry about it. If Satan can seed even a doubt in our heart, he will be able to defeat us. We must be men and women who have a living faith in God, a deep abiding trust that nothing can displace, not even fear. Fifthly, Paul says, if we're going to stand firm in battle and resist Satan, we must have an unshakable assurance of our salvation. Now, another way, Satan is going to wage war against us spiritually. He, he's going to come at us, come at us and he, he's going to want to see doubt. Are, are you really saved? You, you say you were born again 30 years ago. 
Do you really believe that? Looking back, could it have been a mistake? Why is your love so cool today for him? Why don't you have a greater sense of his presence? If, if he loves you and you're in a right relationship, you should, you should know in, in, in him deeply. Why don't you want to go to church? Why do you struggle to be with the people of God? He's going to seed these doubts in your mind and, and with that start to separate you from the Lord. We all remember the day of our salvation, but you know what? With time, memories get fuzzy, <laughs> experiences grow thin, and passions can grow cold. But if we're going to wage war against Satan, and he will come, we must have a vital sense of his salvation in our lives on a daily basis. So again, salvation is an objective truth that we remember what happened to us. But just as importantly, I, re I know where I'm going to be when I die. I am assured that I'm saved. I know for sure where I'm going. But I also, here and now, am experiencing an ongoing grace of God. I am saved. I think this is where a lot of people in, in the church struggle, have doubts. They doubt because they struggle with acceptance in, in different areas of their life, whether it's with their parents, whether it's with their kids. They struggle with being accepted. And as I've looked at a lot of the people I know, it comes down really to the things that we've talked about already. If they're struggling with this issue, if they're being accepted, if they're truly saved by God, it's more than likely a result of not being girded by the truth. Uh, not desiring to grow in holiness in that relationship with God that would then affirm that you are his child. They don't necessarily feel the, the supernatural peace of God on a daily basis, and their trust is not wholly set upon him. There's just one percent or a half a percent that they're trusting in something else. We must be people who are secure in our salvation, past, present, and future, it's only as we have this certainty or this surety that we can stand without fear even in the face of death. Sixth, if we're going to stand firm in battle and resist Satan, we must have an ongoing, unwavering belief in and a commitment to the Word of God. <coughs> the, the last piece of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of the Lord, isn't it? And... and we all know that this is the only offensive piece. Everything else is defensive up to this moment. The understanding really has its, its roots in scriptures like 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, in that text, Paul is saying, and he's affirming to us, there is an efficacy of God's word. It builds up. It equips. It is effective to bring about holiness. And the basic premise is true for spiritual warfare itself. By nature, the word of God comes from God. It is breathed out, literally. And because God is not a God of confusion, he's not a God of dissension, he's not a God of lies, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative for every aspect of life. Our firm and sure weapon against the father of lies is the truth of the word of God. 
And we have the promise in Isaiah 55, 11, where as the word proceeds from his mouth, it will never come back void again. Its effectiveness it comes when we understand that, that um, it, it really defends and builds up and supports all of the other aspects of the armor. It is what girds us with truth. When we have questions about our holiness, it affirms our holiness. When we have questions about whether we really have peace with God, whether we're really saved, or, or whether my, my trust in God wanes, we can go to the Word of God, and there is the authoritative, unchanging, eternal Word of God for us. When Satan comes to accuse us of sin, and he will, he accuses us of sin, rebellion, and having a cold heart towards God, we must peep, be people who respond with the truth of God, that God's grace is still at work in us. Its effectiveness comes when we understand, when Satan comes to, to tell us that we don't really belong to him, that he doesn't really love us, we respond with Romans 8, or 5, 8, and 9. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been reconciled or justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Its effectiveness comes when Satan comes and says, God never really forgave you, or he's not going to forgive you this time for sure because you just keep doing the same thing over and over. We respond with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is exactly what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, isn't it? Every time Satan came at him and, and tempted him to, to, to break communion with God, Satan was put down by the very word of God itself. He fled. This word is a sword. It is effective. However, it's only effective as we learn to wield it. Does that make sense? It, it's there, but if we don't know how to use it, it won't be effective when we need it. If we're going to stand and, and wrestle these cosmic powers of evil, we must believe intrinsically that it is the word of God for us. It is true in everything that it says, but it is true for me. It is not simply an objective truth, but it is my truth that I have taken control of. And that means I need to know chapter and verse for when Satan comes at me, I need to know where to go to use those scriptures to recall. And the best way to do that is Bible memory, which unfortunately is just, it's not in fashion in our churches these days. At minimum, we must be reading the Word of God daily so that if Satan comes, we know how to use this. We know where to go to find it and then read it out loud. But again, much better to have it in our heart and our mind. If we are to do battle with the evil forces, we must be ready with the word of God in response. Now there's one more aspect here that Paul doesn't mention as a piece of armor, yet it's vitally important to it all, and it's connected to the proper use of the word of God, and that's prayer. If we are to be people who are engaged in spiritual warfare, we must be people of prayer. Now, in a couple of weeks, Pastor Allen will touch on this a little more. But I, I want us to notice this, that Paul calls us to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I read that yesterday, and, and I immediately thought of Exodus 17 and Moses doing battle uh, against uh, uh, the Amalekites. Israel has come out 
of uh, Egypt, and they, they want to go to the promised land, and there the Amalekites stand before them. And the Lord says, I will go before you. Stand on this mountain, Moses, and, and keep your hands raised to the heavens. And as long as Moses' hands were raised in supplication, Israel won the day. Every time his hands drooped and his supplication was diverted, Israel lost. Prayers like that for us. Our arms must be extended to the heavens, seeking the Lord to sustain us in this spiritual battle. A dependency upon God's power that he will win the day for us. A trusting in the Lord and his strength. He is our general. Now Paul says that we are to pray at all times in the spirit, meaning that our lives must be marked by prayer, guided by prayer, dependent by prayer, empowered by prayer. Now, someday, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a spiritual battle, and it will be a prayer of adoration and thanksgiving that wins the day. Because as we are reminded of the goodness of God, as we're reminded of the grace of God, our hearts, our, our will, uh, realign to the reality that God, of God's goodness towards us. Sometimes the battle will be done, won by a prayer of confession. And we find ourselves on the battle line and we'll say, Lord, I, I'm not prepared for this. I, I've sinned. Forgive me. And at that point, we're prepared. Most often, however, the battle will be won by a prayer of supplication. We beseech on behalf of others. Now, prayer is not simply a sign of dependence upon God. It is the necessary posture of dependence on God. If we are not growing in our prayer life, we are not learning to depend on the Lord in battle. And the rest of the armor will be useless. So God has provided us with this wonderful set of armor. He's given us something that's not made by human hands. We have a belt, a breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, and sword. But you know what? I think sometimes today, in e with television maybe even more, sometimes I, I think we look at these things and, and we'll think about them too objectively. We'll think of this armor a little like the, the exoskeleton of, of uh, Iron Man or the lasso of truth of Wonder Woman or simply the, the, the chainmail mithril of Bilbo, something that we put on that is magical in and of itself. But Paul says... These things are ours if you put them on daily. You must get into the practice of daily uh, receiving and appropriating these things. Paul says, if you're going to stand against Satan, you must have these things as transformative parts of your life. There must be truth, there must be righteousness, there must be peace with God, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These must be so much a part of our life that they guide how we live. They so grip our attention and our will. They, we bend towards those naturally. They're guiding principles for our life. We need to be growing in them and growing in the efficacy and in the zeal. And when we don't, then we have not put on the armor of God. It's not something magical in and of itself. It is something we appropriate. It comes from God. It, it's a complete set, isn't it? it? There's nothing more than we need uh, that we need, but the reality is if we don't fasten one of those pieces on, we have 
opened ourselves up to a death shot from Satan himself. We could be great in, in all five, five out of the six, and yet that one will destroy us. This is a spiritual war. Satan will attack our conscience. He will attack our spirit. He will exploit every weakness we show. He'll rob us of our boldness and authority. He will rob us of our ability to stand firm in the Lord. We must be people who are girded by truth, characterized by holiness, who trust wholly in the Lord, who have an unshakable assurance of our salvation, who have an unwavering commitment to the word. Is that you this morning? Have you put on the armor of God this morning? It's something we must do daily. And over all of that, Paul says, prayer must guide every aspect of it. It must be part of every part of our life. I think I've told you about a couple in Chile who helped us acculturate down there, Juan and Cecilia. If it hadn't been for them, we probably wouldn't have become so uh, uh, set and, and uh, uh, acclimatized to Chile. Sometime after we left, Juan left the church. He walked away from God. Uh, we remember this couple. They were just lived down the street. They were fiery. They were on, lo- on, on fire for the God. They were part of a church plant that was reaching out to actors and actresses uh, in, in, uh, in Chile. Uh, every time you met them, something new was going on, and, and God was doing wonderful things. But Juan, for whatever reason, one day just walked away from it all. Whatever was brewing in his life, and I haven't found out yet, he had not prepared himself by putting on the armor of God on a daily basis. And, and not putting it on daily meant that when the trial came, he did not know how to put it on. He was not ready to put it on. And he left the church for 10 years. Now, two years ago, I met him again here in Canada because they immigrated here. And he said, I don't know what happened, but I left the Lord. And the reality is, is I think there are way too many people like that in in our Western culture. You can see pastors falling away, but you also see in in any congregation like ours. I personally, I'm sure it happens to women, but I personally know of way too many men who reach my age and have a crisis of faith. They've been wrestling with the family, wrestling with their job, wrestling with their faith for 30 years. They have not learned to appropriate all of these pieces of the armor of God. They have not put them on daily. So when that struggle came, they were unable to stand against Satan. And they've fallen. Verse 13, Paul says, Having done all, stand steadfast. Is that you this morning? Having done all, nothing left undone, every piece of armor put on regularly so that it fits perfectly and you know where each piece goes. You can put it on quickly like that every morning of every day. Having done everything, are you able to stand firm in the Lord today? Let us pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have not simply saved us and left us to our own devices, but that you have provided us with these great and wonderful spiritual blessings, things that 
we know and have experienced, at least objectively, but you call us to know and enjoy them on a daily basis. Oh, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the peace that we have. But Lord, we fully confess that we don't practice putting on the armor of God. We, we fully expect it to always be there just when we need it. But if we have not learned to put it on, learned to cinch it, learned to properly adjust it, it will not fit us and it will not serve us when Satan comes. Help us, I pray, to do that every day, to be conscientious in setting that moment aside that as we read your word, as we pray, we humbly ask that you would help us to put that armor on, to be prepared that should this day be the day that Satan comes, we will be fully prepared to stand and do battle with him. In Jesus' name, amen. I do have one or two quick announcements. First of all, next Saturday morning, August 8th at 10 a.m., there will be a community, sorry, a congregational question and answer time again uh, around the whole concern or proposal of changing our start times once we come out of COVID. So that is in the email that went out the other night. But please, we look forward next Saturday, August 8th. I also want to encourage you that starting August 16th, which is a Saturday, which is the time we're taping at the moment. Starting August 16th, the BOD has agreed to allow upwards to 20 people to come into the sanctuary to be here. It is so hard to preach to an empty sanctuary <laughs> or a few faithful people. Uh, please, for the sake of your own soul, for others, if you desire on that day to start coming to church to be some of those uh, 20, there will be a, a way in an email in, in the near future to do that. As you go this morning, I, I pray that you're not living your life simply on the basis of something that happened years ago, but that you are living a vital, active, and passionate life for Christ here and now. I if you need help in, in understanding what that means, please talk to one of the elders, talk to one of us as pastors. And as you go, know that God is a warrior king. He goes before us, he has already won the battle. He is already victorious over sin and death. Go in the grace and the peace of God.